This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions in that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else can be hands-free, and we love your calls and questions. Hey, because it's Wednesday, a couple of things going on. I'm going to be teaching in Genesis chapter 13 tonight. We're going to look at, um, among other things, we're going to look at sort of Lot's descent into compromise. Um, there's so much value, so much application in the book of Genesis for all of us. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. If you can't make it, you can watch it on um, live stream at calvaryessay.com. And then tomorrow, of course, uh, it'll be the Date Day Show, and Paula will be live in the studio with us on the Date Day program. Okay, let's get to some questions. Um, I ended with one yesterday, and I said I didn't really have enough time to to deal with it, so I'm going to do it again today. It's Melvin's question, uh, challenging me, really. He said, how do you justify the rapture you say is coming when nobody ever believed it until the 20th century? Now, Melvin, what I did have the time yesterday to say was that that is one of the the most erroneous things ever. The early church, I'm talking first century, um, every morning they'd get up and check the eastern sky. The rapture was the hope, the blessed hope, Paul calls it, a mystery that he revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of four mysteries that Jesus gave Paul to disclose to us. So the first century church... Um, that's certainly believing it. Those are the inspired uh, apostolic writings. We have the New Testament that they wrote, and they all codify a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, and there's lots and lots of reasons why. Now, the other thing, when you talk about Darby, he's the guy that popularized it again um, in the 19, I'm sorry, in the 20th century, in the mid-1900s. Um, all he did was just rediscover something that had been ignored. You know, we started back in the, in the 60s, 
and into the 70s where it really blossomed um, a sort of a descent into liberal into liberal scholarship and um, all over our university system um, professors of religious studies with PhDs by their name unregenerate people decided that God did say this or he didn't say that and they just really attacked the veracity of scripture and that's when we turn away you know when we start to believe the lies when we start to apostatize we add to or take away from the word uh, the truth of the matter is, is we lose sight of the soon return of the Lord. You know, that's part of the gospel, that he's coming again. He's coming again in judgment. But just as Jesus said for us to pray, pray that you will be counted worthy to escape these things. Well, that's the basis for our belief in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Melvin, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51, nobody can honestly deny, just reading the words, that Paul is talking about a, a generation of Christians who will not die in the twinkling of an eye. I call it a nanosecond. We'll be gone. We'll be out of here. Now, the only reasonable dispute is over the timing. And when you really understand the character of God, when you understand that God couldn't punish the righteous along with the wicked, then we can conclude that the rapture of the church is going to happen before the final seven-year period of history on earth, as it's demonstrated to us throughout the stories of the prophets and, of course, the book of Revelation. Um, if you're really interested, Melvin, uh, you can go to calvaryessay.com, and I do one whole Bible study. At the beginning of chapter 4, the very first study in chapter 4, uh, every time we teach Revelation, we talk about why it has to be a pre-tribulation rapture of the church and why that um, rapture is imminent. Jesus is coming soon. Hope that helps. 340-9585. You know, one of the things I'm thinking, if, you, if you're looking at the news and you're seeing all of the things that are going on in this world, now I'm just talking about the United States. You know, we have the pandemic and then we have uh, this, this uh, uh, unrest in our nation, and we see um, free speech, free thought, pretty soon uh, the opportunity or the right to gather together uh, in religious services as Christians for us. Um, we see all of those things being stripped away, and we see groupthink and mobthink, really, and there's no room for anybody that dissents from the far-left mantra of the way things ought to be. This is, I believe, with all of my heart, the beginning of the great falling away. That means Melvin Jesus is coming. Here's a question from a Christian. He says, when an unbeliever dies, do they immediately go to hell, or do they just die until the great white throne? I assume you mean, do they just go to sleep? Christian, you can look in Luke chapter 16, and what you've got there is a story, not a parable. It's very important. Jesus tells a story about two men who died the same day. Um, a man named Lazarus and a rich man. Lazarus was a beggar. The rich man, of course, uh, only cared about himself. And when they died, one of them went to a place called Paradise. That's where Lazarus went, where he was comforted, where it was a wonderful place, the same place that Jesus told the thief on the cross that he would be with Jesus on that day. 
So he went to paradise. The other side, and I think the object of the story in Luke chapter 16, is that the rich man went to a place of torment, and he was in agony. He was absolutely in agony. Conscious, aware, uh, able to see that Lazarus was in paradise, and he was aware of uh, another compartment in what we call the abyss. When Jesus died, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he led captivity captive. And by captivity, I mean those who belong to him, those Old Testament saints throughout history who believed in Jesus, believed in his coming, believed the word of God and were credited with righteousness. Those people were freed by Jesus. Now, paradise was a great place, but nothing compared to being in the presence of Jesus. Through it all, the rich man continued in torment. And so, Christian, that's where people go when they refuse Jesus. And this body gives out. They go to that place of torment where they will be tormented until the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment, of course, is not going to happen until after Jesus' 1,000 year reign uh, here on earth. So that's their ultimate resting place not resting but their ultimate place of torment um, they will be there Jesus said with the gnashing of teeth where the worm doesn't die uh, they'll be there forever and ever and ever uh, and that is by the way the lake of fire the real definition of what hell is so we either live with Jesus forever we call that heaven or we live separated from him forever we call that hell Good question, Christian. Thank you very much. Um, Jim says, Pastor Ron, how can we determine what our spiritual gifts are? Thank you, Jim. I was talking about spiritual gifts um, late last week with some questions that we had. Um, uh, You know, I I think sometimes they're obvious. Um, I knew I could teach. Um, I, I knew I couldn't do it in my own strength. It was just something I opened the Bible the, the first time, and I struggled with it for a while. I was in a real spiritual tug of war, but but I kind of got it. Uh, and I don't mean to imply that I had deep spiritual insight, but it just made sense to me. Okay, the Bible says this, and I have to change my life like this. And so I just got it. I, I got what the point was. Um, I was very curious. I knew that that curiosity came from a desire to understand the Word and then ultimately teach the Word. And if we will um, just be faithful with whatever gift God has given us, then he will give us more gifts. Another thing, uh, you know, I think, I think we, we over-mystify the gifts of the Spirit. Um, you know, I think we're looking for signs and wonders. I think we're looking for God to appear to us in a vision or dream. You know, the truth is, a lot of times when we just start serving, I mean, we all know that we're told to serve. Jesus, in John chapter 13, washed the disciples' feet. He said, now, you go and do likewise. The whole idea there is you serve the body of Christ. And when you step out and do this, you're faithful to do what God's asked you to do, then he's going to let you know what spiritual gifts that you have. He's going to let you know. 
That's why I tell people, get involved in service. Don't say, well, I'm gifted to do this, I'm gifted to do that. Just say, okay, where do you need me? Where do you need me? I've told the story before about the man who came to my office um, first week he was in California, or from California, first week he was there in San Antonio. He said he wanted to make, have a meeting. I'm not a big meeting guy. So um, I wasn't, you know, okay. Um, and when he sat down, he just said, my family and I are here. This is who I am. And then he said this, I'm reporting for duty. Now, there's a lot of people that say things like that, Jim. But very few of them really follow up on it. Reporting for duty. Use me any way you want to. And, and now for about 14 years, um, he's proven faithful to that introduction. And in the process, we see spiritual gifts coming from him all the time. But obedience is always the trigger for the power of God. One other thing, and I said this last week, but I want to emphasize it again. Everybody has at least one spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Everybody has at least one gift. When you are faithful with that gift, then watch what God will do as he gives you others. But remember, we're being tested by the Lord. I mean, also, I said that'd be the last thing, Jim, but one other thing. I want to talk about the gift of tongues. Because uh, it's a great gift. It's the least of all of the gifts, but still it's a great gift. Anything from God is a great gift. And I get so many inquiries about the gift of tongues and what it's for and our tongues for today, those kind of things. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the continuous present tense said that I wish you all would speak in tongues more than I do. It's a good thing. But you can't wait for something to happen to you you know, we think about Acts chapter 2. Okay, well, there's going to be a cloven tongue of fire and, and the power of God is going to be there and I'm just not going to be able to stop speaking in tongues. That's not the way it works. It's a completely different gift than in Acts chapter 2. So what we need to do is receive the gift by faith. That's how we get anything from God. If you want to pray in tongues and you want to, your heart's in the right place, just tell the Lord, I'm ready to receive this gift. And then take a step of faith and start speaking. You'll sound silly at first. The enemy will attack you. But as you're faithful, the Holy Spirit will take over. Jim, I had another question about that. Well, well, when you speak in tongues, can you stop? Of course. It's not like God just makes you do it and you just, okay, three hours, I'm going to be speaking in tongues. Not that at all. The gift of tongues ought to be a regular part of our prayer lives. Good question, Jim. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question, anonymous. Um, my question is about Black Lives Matter. Can a Christian support the movement? Uh, I've had a question, I think, almost every day for the last seven or eight days about this. Um, um, no, a Christian cannot support the movement. But a Christian ought then to be the most supportive of black lives that matter to God. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The Black Lives Matter movement is a political group. It's a well-funded um, political group with an agenda. 
and it has nothing to do with Christianity. They are uh, pro-abortion, they are um, um, anti-any authority, especially male authority, they are uh, rabidly pro-LGBTQ, um, um, especially as it relates to transgender, seems to be their, their sort of hitching post. Um, but, but everything, and I mean everything they stand for, is antithetical to what the Scripture teaches us. And what we need to do is understand that we can say that a black life matters without hitching our wagon to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think we're all discerning enough to understand that. And if you have to explain that, and I've had to explain that on this radio show, but I've had to explain it in private conversations. Oh, so you're for Black Lives Matter if you say Black Lives Matter. No, no, no. We can take the time to explain ourselves. This is antithetical to the word. But that black man or that black woman whose life is in danger or whose life has been really, really difficult, they matter to God very, very much. Now, I wish... Anonymous, there would be a time when every Christian would realize that, that there are no colors, there are no races to God. There's saved and there's unsaved. But honestly, we're not going to get there. And now we've got a whole bunch of churches where white people are apologizing for being white people. All that's nonsense. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says that we are who we are. I'm going to sound like Popeye here. For those of you not old enough to remember Popeye, Google it. Um, I am by I am what I am by the grace of God. And I was born in Iowa. Two white parents gave me birth. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm not apologizing for being a white pastor. We've got some people, um, a, a lot of people, by the way, we've got a, 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 almost a perfect distribution of races and nationalities here at Calvary Chapel commensurate with the, the breakdown of those races in our city. And there are a lot of black men and women who come here whose families don't think that they should be coming here. That's an opportunity for us to teach, to share. It's an opportunity if they refuse to repent, to rebuke. But as believers, we've got to get to the place where we understand that color makes no difference. Where you were raised makes no difference. The only thing that matters is do you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you do, praise the Lord. If you don't, then our job as Christians is to evangelize you. And you have to make the choice, but that choice is between you and God. So we ought to support black lives, period. I want to say it really clearly. Every black life matters to God, thus those lives must matter to us. The same thing is true. You remember about a year ago on this program, it seemed like almost all of the politically oriented calls that I got here on the program were about the immigration issues that we have in the border. Now suddenly that's just nobody's, it's not anybody's, um, rearview mirror anymore. But every brown life matters to God. 
Every white life matters to God. Every Asian life matters to God. And we see people and we automatically set ourselves in opposition to them. And what we need to understand is that that is an affront to a holy God. You know, if we could have been uh, there, you know, walk around, or if we could take a time machine back to walk around when Jesus was walking in Israel, the, the racial makeup of the people walking around in the streets of Jerusalem or around the Sea of Galilee would be astounding to us. We'd call it the United Nations. Well, that's because Jesus draws all men, all women to him. And the only question that we're going to answer is, what did you do with Jesus? So let me say, if you are a, a born-again Christian, a New Testament believer, and if you harbor prejudice, you're in sin, your prayers are being hindered, you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your life, and because of all that, you're going to be miserable, and you need to repent. We simply cannot have prejudices. And since we're all smart enough to understand that what the media is doing with the Black Lives Movement, Black, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, is going to naturally set them up in opposition to the rest of the people. And division is always the enemy. And we're to be peacemakers. I'm going to talk about that tonight. Abraham sets a wonderful example of what it means to be a peacemaker, and it requires great faith. So if I could wave a magic wand, or God said, okay, you got the power to do one thing today, I would, I would sort of swipe everybody's brains and fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit so that the world would see what true love is. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Phones have been quiet. 340-9585. Here is a question um, from Raymond. He says, Why is it that churches seem never to use church discipline with members who are living together? If they were gay, they would kick them out of the church. Uh, Raymond, that is um, um, a silly, unkind, unfair generalization and judgment on your part. You don't know what churches are doing with church discipline. There are times that we've had to exercise church discipline, and the whole point of church discipline is to do it lovingly and privately so that when people come back, the rest of the body can receive them. But to think that we treat people who are gay different than people who are living together uh, is really an unfair judgment on your part. I talk far more, Raymond, about sexual immorality between heterosexual professing Christians than I ever talk about homosexuality. Far, far more. One of the problems is that we don't always know if people are living together. we got a lot of people that come to this church. 
And so we don't know. There's a lot of people who appear to be married. They appear to be a couple. They don't say anything because they know instinctively that it's wrong. But when we know, I promise you, we approach them. Now, the same thing is true when we know that somebody's homosexual. We welcome to the church, but we also are obligated to let them know that what they're doing is wrong. And it precludes them having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the beauties, Raymond, of what I do, uh, the way I do it, is that we just teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we can't avoid these things. And so if you sit at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio for any length of time, you're going to hear all these things. So for you to assume that I or that other churches, well, we just kind of turn our nose up at sexual immorality between heterosexuals, but we're on a campaign against gays. The only campaign we're on is to win people to Christ. And as a pastor, when I give an invitation and when the Lord is is giving me a word of knowledge about people here who are sexually together, who aren't married, believe me, it breaks my heart to see them sort of anchored down in their chairs instead of getting up and getting right with God. They just prefer to keep doing it, hoping that God understands. Or I don't know why they keep coming. I really don't. Hey, well, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Phones have been quiet, 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up For Life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday program. Quick reminder, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Date Day Show. So, ladies, that's your day. If you have any questions or need any encouragement, she'll be here. And then tonight, I'll be teaching Genesis chapter 13. And these are really rich chapters. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, how should I respond to a woman preacher who says her gift is teaching and preaching, and that's why she's a pastor? Um, I mean, you know, she's convinced that you're probably not going to change your mind. But I would ask her, Logically, is God going to give you a gift that would make you disobedient? Now, women, there's no problem with women being teachers. Uh, we've, we've been gifted here at Calvary Chapel with a whole bunch of really, really good female teachers. Uh, they teach women's Bible studies. They do a lot of counseling. There's so much need for the gift of teaching in counseling situations. 
But you see, Anonymous, when somebody says, well, I've got this gift, I'm going to do what God told me I can't do, that's just rebellion. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with qualifications or spirituality. It's simply that God says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. He's talking about the role of a pastor. First Timothy chapter 2. And all we have to do is obey. So, um, I would probably tell her, and I've had this opportunity a few times to talk to people, that if you really have the gift of teaching, then you'll understand why you can't be a pastor. And we live in a time where people do what seems right to us. We have been so influenced, so compromised by the culture that we live in. Oh no, it's so incorrect politically and socially to say the woman can't do something. We're not saying that the woman is not gifted. Uh, At least two of the women teachers we have here at Calvary Chapel, I think are more gifted than I am. But what value is that gift if you're using it in rebellion against God's word? And think anonymous, what it boils down to is that we simply don't really care what God's Word says. If I want to do something, I'm going to find a reason to do it. I actually had one woman pastor who said to me, well, I just think you're wrong. If God could trust a woman to have a, uh, to be the mother of Jesus, then I think God could trust a woman to be the pastor. Now, that's an imbecilic response. Men can't have babies. It was through the males that the sin nature was passed. So when Jesus was born, a man could have nothing to do with it. What we have to do is remember that the Bible's pretty easy to understand. Every time we are in disagreement with what the Word says, we've got to be honest enough. If we're going to have a fruitful walk, we've got to be honest enough to admit that we just don't care what it says. At least honestly, if we're honest, God can deal with our heart. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much. Here's another anonymous question. Um, What would you tell someone in your church if they disagreed with your view on something and wanted a platform to teach it to the members of your church? Um, You know, I'm I'm almost laughing, but this has happened so many times uh, over our 25 years. And here's what I tell everybody. I tell them, go get your own church. Go start a church. Well, well, I can't get people. I have a job. I just, I just want to share my knowledge with what God's... Well, not, not with my people. You see, a pastor is supposed to protect the flock from false teachers. Now, even if the person that came to me and said that was right, I'd want to protect my people from a, a, an egomaniacal heart like that. So it's real clear. You know, even on this radio program, Anonymous, we get people come in and will lie about who they are um, because they've got an agenda. They're, they're going to just start talking really fast and talk over me because they've got something to share. Now tell them the same thing. Why don't you go get a radio program? Oh, nobody's offered you one. So that's what I would tell them, and it happens way more often than you think. Young men especially... When I say young men, I mean young in years as well as young in the faith. They'll read somebody and say, well, that's the truth, and they'll get 
so excited about it that they'll want to try to spill it on everybody else. And you've got to tell them, you know, you, you've not been walking with the Lord for very long. You, you haven't spent a bunch of time studying this through. If God has given you the gift to teach, he'll also provide the opportunity to teach, but you've got to be faithful. And uh, it's just impossible for me to consider that I would ever let somebody who I didn't know. And by that I mean I, I'd watch their walk with the Lord. I, I knew that they were men full of the Spirit. Or in some cases, women. There's no way I'd give anybody a platform to teach people here. I had one person say to me, well, you're just jealous that people are going to think I'm a better teacher than you. And all I could think was, well, if that makes you feel better, go for it. But a pastor's job is to protect the flock. And a lot of times people come in. A lot of times people come in and all they want is a platform. They don't want to serve. They don't want to sacrifice. They just want a platform. They want to be influencers. And we need to protect the people away from that. So that's what I would tell someone and have told several someones uh, anonymous over the years about that very thing. Here is a question from Alfred. Uh, if priests cannot be married, why is it okay for pastors to be married? Uh, maybe because in the church uh, of Jesus Christ, I'm talking about born-again believers, we actually believe what the Bible says. You know, the Catholic Church's prohibition against uh, their priests being married is nonsensical. You know, they claim Peter is their first pope. Peter was married. So, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear, and yet Catholic tradition throughout the centuries maintains that the priest has to be celibate, unmarried, and that's the anti-biblical position. So, Alfred, um, priests should be able to be married, but you know what? Most of them aren't born again. They don't know the Word. And they rely more on church tradition than they do on what the Word says. That's always a recipe for disaster. Let's take our first phone call, our friend Jimmy from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, uh, Pastor, I heard you talking about uh, the gift the gift of tongues. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I asked God for that, and, 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 uh, and then I found myself sometimes when I'm listening to the Word or, or uh, I, I read it or I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm driving or something, and, and, I, and um, I pray to God or talking to Him, and then right away I just say, like, stuff, I don't know what I'm saying, or, uh, you know, like, mumble stuff. And my wife gets mad at me because she says, "I mean, you don't have to get the tongues." And I said, <laughs> and I said oh, "Well, you know what? I, I believe I do because I already know in my heart." At first, I didn't know why. At first, I was like, "Do I really have this, or do I?" And then, and then I had, and then I felt peace in my heart about it. So that mm-hmm. I don't say like in front of people because it just started. It just started like about like four months ago or so. Jimmy, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14 both indicate clearly that the gift of tongues is a vertical gift. A man doesn't speak to men, but speaks to God when he's praying in his prayer language. And and so what we should not do is, is put people in a position where they're listening to us 
um, just talk what would sound to be nonsense. Um, the gift of tongues uh, is a gift, uh, and I'll tell you the exception in a moment, is a gift that, that ought to be used in private. And here's what I would tell you to do, Jimmy, and that, that is to stop mumbling. Take a walk with Jesus and let it go. And you will get better at it. The Spirit will take over. Now, the enemy's still going to lie and tell you that, now that's not the gift of tongues. You're just making that up. Uh, he'll try his best to make you feel silly. Um, but, but like any other spiritual gift, we've got to take steps in it, use it in proportion to our faith. And so you've got you to exercise it. So um, just sit in your room with the Bible open. There's times when you don't really know what to say. Um, so use the gift that God has given you. I, too, would agree with you, Jimmy, that, that this is a gift that God has given you. But what he wants you to do is run with it. Now, it's not something you have to do every day. It's not something you're going to do for hours. It's not going to be this ecstatic utterance. Um, most of the time when I'm praying in tongues, I'm praying under my breath, sort of, Lord, help me with the gift of understanding or interpretation. Uh, Paul says that we should pray for the gift. I don't have that gift of interpretation, Jimmy. So here's what I know. Today was a good example. While I'm out, uh, I get to a place my heart was just so broken. Just over the general condition of things, some things going on in people's lives that I'm aware of. And all I could think about was, Lord, I, I don't even know how to pray. And so instantly I began praying in tongues. And... Uh, I prayed for, I don't know, some time, five minutes or so. Um, um, and, and at the end of it, I could say, Lord, I don't know what I prayed. But I do know that what I prayed was in the perfect will of God. I do know that it was um, motivated by your spirit. And so, Lord, thank you for giving me the opportunity to pray for things, to pray for people even when I have no understanding of who that is. There's just times when we have to sort of give up and say, Lord, um, this is a gift that you've given me to use for your glory. It doesn't really matter if I understand it. And I think a lot of Christians, Jimmy, miss out because to them it sort of is nonsensical and, and they just sort of lose interest in it. And I think it's a gift that needs to be developed. It needs to be nurtured. So instead of mumbling with your wife around, um, wait till you're alone in your prayer room or wait till you're alone taking a walk with Jesus or in your truck and, and then just let it go. And don't worry about how it feels. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. But get into the habit, discipline yourself to get into the habit of using that gift because every gift God gives is great. It's wonderful. Sure, tongues is the least of all the gifts. But it gives me the opportunity to talk to God in the perfect will of God. And that's a hard thing when you're praying in, in your native language. Um, truth is, we don't know that we're praying in the perfect will of God usually when we're praying with our mind. We want our mind to be fruitful. Now, the only exception, and I'll do this quickly, Jimmy and everybody else have already talked about tongues enough but when you're in a corporate setting the gift of tongues actually turns into the operation 
of the gift of prophecy. And the reason that is, is because Paul says that when you gather together in the church, two or three at the most should pray in tongues, but always with an interpretation. And so if there's no interpretation, then you just don't pray in tongues anymore. It's that simple. If I were having an afterglow, not this Friday, but the following Friday, and um, we'll have an opportunity if somebody has a word in a prayer language, um, I'll stop as soon as he or she is done. I'll stop and say, I know we have people with a gift of interpretation here. So if anybody has the interpretation of that tongue, then we'll just wait to receive it. And if it doesn't come, then I'll say, well, no interpretation, so we won't be exercising the gift of tongues any longer. Whenever you go into a church and you see people praying in tongues all at the same time, um, that is in, in opposition to what the Word says. The way, you, In fact, Paul says, if somebody comes in and you're speaking in tongues, everybody's talking like this, they're going to think you're crazy. And they would be right to do so. So, Jimmy, thank you. I appreciate the, the call. The question is a good one. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is another anonymous question. He says or she says, "I have another church discipline question. Why don't we discipline people who are pro-abortion?" Um, you know, the sin of abortion is an action. Um, we're not the thought police, and and sin is when we take action on an ungodly thought. So it is possible. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm as wrongly pro-life as anybody can be. But if a Christian says, well, I believe the woman has the right to choose, we wouldn't put her or him under church discipline because they haven't done anything yet. It's not them who's had an abortion. So... Um, you know, we can't monitor people's thoughts. Nor, nor are we supposed to govern their thoughts. So um, that's why we don't do it. Um, I think we take the time and sit down and show them from the Word of God that they need to agree with Jesus. I tell our church all the time that, that as a Christian, the minute we say, yes, Lord, we have agreed to agree with Jesus. Um if that person was telling people in the church it is okay to get abortion, I don't care what Pastor Ron says, then we discipline them. But just having a pro-abortion opinion is not in and of itself a sin that should be disciplined. I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the question. Andre says... Why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, a couple reasons, Andre. First, um, because he was forsaken by his Father. Now think about this for a moment. Um, Jesus, from the beginning, wherever before there was a beginning, Jesus, his Father, and the Holy Spirit were in, in perfect unity. Always, always, always. They were never without the others. Um, one God, three persons, but the perfect harmony and the perfect unity of their existence 
is um, um, unimaginable to humans. Um, when Jesus became sin, we, we, we sometimes think, well, he took our sins. But the Bible says that he became sin, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. When he became sin, the Father, in effect, had to look away. Now, obviously, God is everywhere, so I'm speaking figuratively, but, but the Father had to look away. And at that moment, as darkness engulfed the earth, Jesus' darkness was infinitely greater. And so for the first time ever, ever, he was without that unity of heart, spirit, mind, with the Father, and I would add, with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was literally alone on that cross. Now there's another reason that I think gets overlooked, Andre. Um, Jesus was quoting the 22nd Psalm, which Jews knew was messianic. And as he quoted that Psalm, he was crying out to them, the Psalm that you say is about the Christ that would be spoken by the Christ. That's what I'm saying to you now. It was almost like he was giving an altar call from the cross. So even in his agony, even in the horror that he was facing, being separated from his father for the very first time, forsaken, Jesus' thoughts were always to win those, even those who were trying to put him to death. Thank you for the question, Andre. I like that question. Nicholas says, Pastor Ron, how can I improve my prayer life? Um, Nicholas, the first thing is obvious. Just do it. Just pray. You know, you get better at praying the more you do it. I can always tell when somebody doesn't pray much privately when I hear them pray publicly. You know, when I hear somebody say, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, and, and we all fall into those ticks. I call them those, those bad habits with our prayer language. I know people that will say the word just. Just bless me, Lord. Just this. I just wanted this. I just wanted that. We, we need to avoid that. That's somebody who doesn't really pray a lot in private. We'll use the term Jesus, Lord, or God over and over and over. He knows who we're talking to. So when somebody is not praying effectively in a corporate setting it's because they're not praying very much personally or privately so just do it just talk to him he's a stranger to a lot of us we we know him we were saved by him but we don't really know him and that's why we find it difficult to have the right words so just talk to him the same way you talk to a best friend or a family member just talk to him share your heart pour your heart out and he'll pour out his heart to you now let me make another suggestion two things Nicholas one do this every day for a week take the Lord's model for prayer our Father which art in heaven take that one and say it really slowly take your time get outside with Jesus 
And as you say that our Father, and stop for a moment and think about what that means. The implications of that are enormous. He chose you. He adopted you. He didn't have to. He wasn't stuck with you. He wanted you. And from the other perspective, we can say, well, well you, you can't pray if he's not your father. You must be born again. Our Father which art in heaven, have you ever thought about when you're going through something difficult, the fact that God lives in heaven, sets him above the judgments of this world, sets him above the problems in this world. He has a vantage point where he sees the end from the beginning, so it should give us a great deal of comfort. Now, I could go through the whole thing. I actually, I think, spent four or five weeks teaching that when I when I taught it. But I think just take that model for prayer and really slowly say it out loud and then meditate on the implications of it. Teaching that passage, the Gospel of Matthew, changed my prayer life. That was many, many years ago now. But it changed my prayer life. Nicholas, another thing that I would suggest you do is read the prayers of the Bible. Daniel's prayer in in um, Daniel chapter 10 is especially helpful. Uh, Nehemiah's prayers. Um, um, just read the prayers. We know they're spirit-inspired prayers because they're in our Bible. Read the prayers of the Apostle Paul, especially to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. You want to talk about a man who knew God and can pray. Just read his prayers. And in most cases, he's praying for you or for me, for other people when he's doing it. So, get familiar with those prayers. And when you do, the Spirit of God will take over and you'll know how to pray. Very important. We talk to Jesus. So read those Old Testament, New Testament prayers and let the Lord really, really bless you with a whole new heart to pray. I think we're almost out of time here. Um, so see if I have a quick question. Um, here's what I can do very quickly. Jackie says, why didn't Jesus say anything about homosexuality if it's such an important topic? Well, um, remember, Jackie, that Jesus is the author of the Old Testament. He is the author of the New Testament. So when Paul said something about it, it was really Jesus, the Spirit of God, pushing the pen of Paul. Jesus is the one who spoke about sexual immorality, woman at the well in Samaria. So he said a lot about sexual immorality. Homosexuality isn't something that he would have had to talk about because, frankly, in a Jewish culture, Jesus came to Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, homosexuality wasn't an issue. Jews simply didn't have that issue. So that wasn't something he had to talk about. Now, what do you think, Jackie, based on that line of reasoning, think about all the things that Jesus didn't have anything to talk about, and yet we know those things are horrible. So, hope that answers your question. Hey, I'll be teaching Genesis chapter 13 tonight. Paula will be live in studio tomorrow on the Date Day edition of the program. We'd love to have you join us. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.